Morning to everyone. So good to see you all. It's good to see that we're all dressed for California winter. Um, I feel a little bit ashamed when I see the weather report and across the country, but you know, we're in California. This is cold for us. Um, some of you are probably sick like me or getting over sickness, and so we're going to start out with a word of prayer because we need Jesus this morning, all right? I need Jesus this morning. So would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Thank you for being so good to us. Lord, your mercies are new every morning, God. Thank you, Lord God, for um, just the gift of family and friends. Thank you for the gift, Lord God, of worship, where you center our hearts on you, Lord, and you, you reveal who you are to us. May we never take that for granted, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for the gift of this worship team, Lord, who minister to you and minister to us, Lord, so selflessly. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, um, we pray, pray for open hearts. We know that's a miracle. We pray, Lord God, for soft soil, for your seed, Lord God, to bear harvest in. Because we know, Lord God, that you're looking for more than just words. You're looking for harvest. You will expect a harvest from us one day. But you are the one faithful to bring forth the harvest from us. And so we just surrender to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, really excited just to kind of come before you. Uh, Pastor Sebastian uh, has invited me to speak the next two weeks and to continue this theme that, that God has put on his heart. And, and I was very, um, I had a lot of thoughts when Pastor Sebastian revealed this theme that God had put in his heart uh, for a lot of different reasons. One is that I think we may be the fifth church I know, accounting, that God has put this particular um, theme on. And so I don't think that the five churches I know talk to each other. So it's not like we're copying each other. We've got lazy. It's like, oh, where should we go for a theme? Let's see what that church is doing. I actually think that this is something the Lord is doing. I think it's something the Lord is saying to us, um, not just this morning, but I think really to position and prepare his people for what he is doing in this season. So I think this is very critical. I think the second reason why this is very um, interesting and surprising to me is because of the implications of deeply rooted. Now, I, I grew up kind of a church cynic. Right? I, I grew up in church, and you know, I, I'm familiar with all the church terms and the, the church kind of culture in the ways. And so I've got to be fully honest with you. Growing up, I never paid attention to uh, church themes ever. I never paid attention to church vision statements ever or even mission statements because they just kind of come and go, right? And the church kind of stays the same. But as I was praying and thinking over this theme of deeply rooted, I realized that there's a shift taking place. And I really want to, to, to share with you this morning the importance of the shift that's taking place. Because why is it so important to be deeply rooted? The very implication of deeply rooted means that there is a storm coming. And if you are not deeply rooted, if I am not deeply rooted, we will become uprooted. Um, there's, a, there's an old, old Chinese story that I like. I forget where it's from. It's pretty old. I think it's from the Warren States period. Um, so two, two little dolls are talking to each other. One doll is made out of wood. The other doll is made out of clay. And then the wooden doll says to the clay doll, I feel so, so sorry for you. You know, because when the, when the rain comes, you're just going to melt, you know, into a little puddle because you're made out of clay. But I'm made out of wood, so I'm going to be okay. I feel really sorry for you. But then the clay doll says to the wooden doll, no, I feel sorry for you. Because I came from the earth. And when the rain comes, I'll go back to the earth. But when the rain comes, where are you going to end up? And you see, there's a storm coming. And so God is calling his church to be deeply rooted because it's very important. Just as he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that you build your house upon the rock. The rock, which is who Jesus Christ is, what his will is, what his word is. Because if you do not build your house upon the rock, your life will be washed away. And it is not his will for your life to be washed away. It is his will for you to be deeply rooted so that you can be preserved and prosper in the time to come. But the process of becoming deeply rooted is, don't miss my words, deeply countercultural. The practices of being deeply rooted are not what this culture preaches, are not what this world preaches. And so just like Noah building the ark and everybody laughing at him, in the preparation of being deeply rooted, there are things that you will do that will feel unnatural to you if you judge by the standards of the world. 
They may even feel sometimes to be a waste of time or a waste of effort or you don't know if it's doing anything. But here's the promise. If you believe as I do that God is speaking to our church and God is calling us to be deeply rooted, then the wise will do, will not simply listen to the sermons on Sunday morning, but you will do what is preached. And you may not get an immediate effect. But if you are faithful to do what God is teaching us, because I do believe it is God teaching us, not the pastors, but God through the pastors teaching us, you will survive the storm. Can someone who speaks Mandarin read this out loud? Because my Mandarin is terrible. Can someone read this? Come on, you, you guys know how to read it. I don't know how to read it. Don't, 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 don't make me pronounce the Mandarin, okay? I'm Cantonese. Someone say it loud, please. Thank you. Okay, say it one more time. Okay, good. Now, full disclosure, no Chinese church that I have ever been to or heard of has ever translated the idea of being deeply rooted this way. And, and the idea is this, right? It's, it's, it's a Chinese idiom proverb that literally means deep roots and, and like a strong stem. And, and it has both kind of like positive and negative meanings, right? Like this is, in Chinese, is what you say about a person who is so stubborn, so set in their ways that nothing could ever change their mind. Nothing could ever make them decide to do something different. Or maybe there's an idea in society that is so entrenched that no matter how much you try to dig it out of the culture, you can't because that culture is set in its ways. That, that's what this proverb really brings to mind. So when used in a church context, oftentimes what it brings to mind for people are some people who are such traditionalists, you know, so set in a particular way of doing church or a particular way of, uh, of worship or whatever that they do not want to change, will not change. Their ideas of God and sin and salvation are absolutely firm even when they're wrong. That's, that's the connotation here. And this is why almost every church, Chinese church that I come across, when they're trying to you know, talk about deep, being deeply rooted, they prefer the term living root rather than this proverb. But there's something in this proverb that struck me when I was thinking about it that I wanted to share with you, and it's that idea that what if the thing that you and I were to become deeply entrenched to is not an ideology, is not a, a, a moral ethic or anything, or not a tradition. It is actually the life and testimony and witness of Jesus Christ himself. That the thing that we become so deeply entrenched in is to actually do what he teaches, to live as he speaks. That no matter what happens in this life, what are the pressures you face and the stuff that goes on in your life, you will not be shaken. What a wonderful thing that would be. But here's why. Because Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the source, not just once when you accepted him, but now and forever of your eternal life. And so if you and I were to become deeply rooted in him, unshakable, set in living out his life exactly as he taught it, you and I could not be cut off from eternal life. And when the storms of life come your way, the setbacks of life come your way, grief comes your way, sorrow comes your way, you may bend, but you will not break. And not only that, but you will be strong to be a shelter for others. That, I believe, is the essence of what it means to be a gospel-centered family. It's not just lip service. It's not talking to, telling people what flavor of church we are. We are saying that we are a church whose roots have sunk deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to start with that this morning because the theme specifically for this morning is prayer. It's prayer. And so the text is a familiar one. This is from Matthew chapter 6. 
pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be made holy. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. If you haven't memorized it, I strongly encourage you to. I heard the analogy put this way. Um, there, there was a professor um, who held up two kind of you know, units of currency in front of his class in seminary. He had a $1 bill and he had a $100 bill. Right? And he says, both of these you know, bills are valid. If you were to go to Safeway, Safeway would take both of these. But the $100 bill is worth so much more than the $1 bill. You would definitely take the $100 bill. And so he says, all scripture is valid, absolutely. All of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, so on and so forth. But there are some parts of scripture that are really, really, really valuable, really, really applicable. And my suggestion to you, my, my exhortation to you this morning is please memorize those because they will serve you well. Root yourself in these passages. Learn them by heart. And the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer is one of them. And what I want to propose to you is that Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, he's teaching us something very important. Because implicit in this prayer is why we pray. Most of the time when pastors talk about prayer, people are looking um, for, for, for one of two things, right? One is, pastor, give me uh, practical tips for prayer. How do I pray better? How, what are things I can do to improve my prayer life? Okay. Another thing that people look for in sermons about prayer is maybe testimonies about how prayer works, you know, inspire me so I can kind of get up in the morning a little bit earlier and pray again. You know, both of these things are good. Testimonies are wonderful. And, and there are a lot of practical tips. If, if you want to come to me afterwards, I would be, love to talk to you, and maybe I could offer a few tips on how to kind of adjust your prayer life to, to get more out of it. But what I really want to point out this morning is this idea of what does it mean to become deeply rooted in prayer. And what it means to be deeply rooted in prayer is not related in tips to improve your prayer life, or even the inspiration for you to pray more. Because there's a lot of people I meet who pray a lot, but they miss it. What the Lord's Prayer tells us is that prayer is primarily about changing us. Prayer is about primarily changing us. Prayer exists to conform us to a very particular way of relating to God. But here's the good news. When you relate to God in that way, that's when you start to see the promises of Scripture come through. And the gospel starts to flow in love, in fulfillment, in harvest, in power. Because God has designed relationship with him in a certain way. See, we live in a world nowadays where everybody claims a relationship with God. And to an extent, they are correct. Okay, To an extent, they are correct in that every single human being does have a kind of relationship with God. How do I know this? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. The love of God is a form of relationship. There is nobody who exists on earth who was not created by him, who is not loved by him, who is not known by him. He laughs over every birth, cries over every death. He sees every single person. That is a kind of a relationship. But he desires for us, and don't miss this, he desires for us to live with him in a specific kind of relationship that he prescribes. Because he is gentle and merciful, he will not force you into that mold. But his life is not to be found outside of that mold. And therefore, it is to our benefit that we submit to him when he starts shaping us in that mold. I understand that what I'm saying here is not very popular here in the Bay Area. 
Because here, more than most parts of the country, or even most parts of the world that I visit, we really want to do things our way. We really feel that even if we learn something really good, we can somehow find a better way. So here, we accept many teachers, but we do not easily receive the Lord. I'll show you what I mean when we go through the Lord's Prayer. So how does it start? How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven. It starts by telling us a very specific kind of relationship that we are to have with God. Our Father who art in heaven. Now immediately that makes everything complicated. Because all of us have a different earthly father, and all of us will take something different from our earthly fathers. There are many great earthly fathers. There are no perfect earthly fathers. If you think you're the one who's perfect, we'll pray afterwards. Okay. That was a joke. No one laughs in this church when I tell jokes. I'm a terrible joke teller. There's no perfect earthly fathers. But there's no one human being that's more instrumental in shaping your concept of God and how you relate to him than your earthly father, for better and for worse. That's just the truth. And God understands this, and he accepts this, and he wants us to honor our earthly fathers, but he will not leave us where we are. He wishes to continue to guide us and lead us and mold us and shape us. But first, he says to you and me, and he says it to you and me this morning, I am your earthly father. And specifically to be a first century Middle Eastern father it, it, it's, it's two things, right? One is that your father loves you and demonstrates his love for you by providing everything for you. And I mean everything. He'll provide everything for you. You know, you don't have to worry about what kind of career you're going to do. You know what kind of career you're going to do? You're going to do what your father did. Right? Your father was a blacksmith, you're going to be a blacksmith. Your father was a carpet salesman, you're going to be a carpet salesman. And a good father will actually teach their child the skills, equip them with the, the resources and the funding, and then set them forth to be successful in the same line of work. Right? The father is going to provide a place of living. Jesus says, right, like, I, you know, I, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Why does he go back to his father's house? Because that's what fathers do. Fathers are the one who provides for their children, not just the place for them to live, but also the foundation for the new family that they're going to start. So Middle Eastern fathers provide everything for their children. And the second thing is that Middle Eastern fathers expect to be obeyed in everything by their children. You know, we, we live in America now where um, I look at even just kind of parenting here in the 2010s. And, and, and you guys know, you guys watch too, right? I, I, I feel like the, the emphasis on will of parenting has shifted, where even in like the 1980s and the 1990s, parenting was very much about the parents' will, okay? Don't go there, don't go there, do this, do that. Uh, I'll give you an example, right? Like, um, I thank my parents because uh, there's a lot of different kind of foods I like to eat. I'm not a picky eater, right? My my parents have prepared me very well for a missionary lifestyle because I'll, I'll eat just about anything. But that's not me naturally. Naturally, I'm actually a very picky eater. So how did I become someone who's not so picky? My mom would cook something, and I would say, I don't like it. And my mom's like, great, you can eat tomorrow then. (laughs) You know, I remember one time that she gave me cough syrup, and I coughed it up because I didn't like it. I coughed it up in a cup of water. She kept that cup of water in the fridge for me. She said, okay, you can come back and drink it later. You don't get dinner until you finish drinking it. Right? It was an emphasis on parenting on on my mother's will. Right? And, and sometimes my father's will. I'm, I'm Cantonese, so it's mostly my mother's will. Right? But, but you know, we shift now, so I, I'll, I'll go to the malls and I'll see parents, right? And it's like the little babies are the one who leads, right? It's like, and the parents come in tow, right? One parent is chasing to make sure the kid doesn't get hurt. The other parent has the stroller with all the stuff, you know? Oh, they might need the stuff. Oh, okay. Oh, he wants to nap. Oh, he wants to eat. Oh, he wants to do this, do that. So there's been a a shift in emphasis on parenting. I'm not making a value judgment on it. I'm just saying, first century Middle East, the emphasis is completely on the Father's will. And my point is that here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is telling us what kind of relationship that we have with our God. 
He deeply, deeply loves for you. And he will provide everything for you. When Isaac needed a wife, did he go look for a wife? No. What happened when Isaac needed a wife? His father sent a servant. And the servant went to go find the wife. So your father deeply loves you and will provide everything for you. In fact, a father who fails to provide for you would not be a good father. But also a father expects to be obeyed and everything. So when you pray as Jesus teaches you to pray, my father who art in heaven, what you are doing is you are conforming yourself to Jesus Christ's vision for your relationship with God. That in fact, if I were to pray my father who is in heaven, and I don't mean it, that would make me into a hypocrite and a liar as I pray. You understand the role of prayer in the life of the Christian now. Because I speak for myself. I am that kid who's very independent. I was so independent that I needed a leash when I was a kid, okay? I was that kid on the little blue plastic leash because I would just run off all the time. And I could tell you testimonies from my own life how the Lord had to break me and the Lord had to break my will to surrender to him and trust him completely, to stop going off my own and say, no, Father, what is your will? You see this? How many times do you pray this in your prayer life? Before you start asking or talking or, or anything, you say, Father, what is your will? The, the second half of that sentence, you know, our, our Father who is in heaven, may your name be made holy, is also something that is hard for us to understand now. Because when we think of the name of God, and we think of taking the name of God in vain, what you usually think of is people saying swear words, right? It's like a, you, you, you're, you're hammering, you hit your, you hit your thumb with your hammer, and you're like, ah, and some people say, like, you know, Jesus Christ or whatever, right? And, and, and that's usually what we think of as, like, you know, saying the name of the Lord in vain. Now, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, don't say Jesus Christ, okay, please. That's not, not, not very great, okay? But that's not what that means. Here's what it means. Everybody in the ancient Middle East knew that your father's name is on you. And not only that, you are made in the image of God. And not only that, but you who have given your lives to be part of the people of God, you are the people of God. The name of God is on you. To take your father's name in vain is then to be as one of the people of God, but to live for purpose that are not his. If I, as one of the people of God, and I let everybody know because I have a nice little Jesus fish in the back of my car. I jump in my car off to church and I go down the 280 and I'm cutting off every single car, right? And let's say that not only that, but I'm wearing my clerical collar. You know, some of you have seen me wear my clerical collar. I will become known as the crazy priest with a Jesus fish on the back of his car cutting everybody off, right? The name of God is on me, but I am actually causing the name of God to be put into disrepute. I'm taking the Lord's name in vain. So what does it mean then for me to do the opposite, to bring honor and bring glory to the name of God? That as a believer, when you and I, we do things that people see and recognize like that is good. Somebody hurts you, but you forgave them. You have no reason to help that person, but you help them. Where you could have been expected to compete and to destroy and to tear down, instead you built up and you gave way and you brought peace instead of conflict into a situation. And people say, wow, who is this person? And they're like, we don't know, but we just know that they're a Christian because they've talked about it a few times. Now you're bringing glory to the name of God. So in the Lord's Prayer, when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, may your name be made holy, the very first thing that you and I pray for in our prayer life is what? For the name of God to be exalted in his people. And by praying that, if you are to pray it with integrity, that means that you are submitting yourself 
to fully living such a life that would bring glory first to the name of God. If you study Christian culture, you realize Christian culture is all about correction. And that's just human nature. That's fine, right? But what I mean by this is that oftentimes things will go one direction because it's good. But then as the church, we're going to take it too far. And so then the next generation, the church culture, tells you to go back the other way because we've taken it too far this way. But then we're going to take it too far this way, and then we're going to need another correction to go back this way. That's normal, okay? And I'm telling you this because we've had a correction in the last 10 years, and we need another correction now. We had a correction in the last 10 years, specifically, I would say, in the pastoral space because we saw a lot of pastors burn out. We saw a lot of pastors burn out because they were trying to, to serve their churches and, 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 and serve different things, and churches had become bloated with programs, programs that were supposed to help people, but were actually were tearing people down and tearing down volunteers and breaking them down. And so about 10 years ago, there needed to be a correction. And so in many of the seminaries and conferences and churches, they started saying, you need to learn how to set boundaries and prioritize other things because it is not God's will for a pastor to serve 50 different programs, but to have a personal life that's torn down. And that's true. But I'm telling you now, it's time for the other correction, which is this. You and I, here in the Bay Area, we live in a society now that has taken on the message that Christians are to have many different pursuits and many different priorities, but God always ends up being the last of them all. That cannot be the case cannot be the case. And the reason why it cannot be the case is for your good. Matthew 11, Jesus Christ says, come unto me all who are weak and I will give you rest. Immediately take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and I will give you rest for your soul. Many of you, myself included, we come to church looking for rest. Good, it's the right place to come. You know how Jesus is going to give you? rest. He gives it to you by giving you his yoke. A yoke is something you put over the necks of oxen as their burden, as their task. What Jesus is saying is this. You will find rest for your soul in doing the work, the assignment that God gives you. And the assignment that God gives you does not always make sense to you in the present time according to your priorities and needs. It does not always make sense. The Gospels tell a story. There's a man who comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I am going to follow you. But first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You, come follow me. That's an extraordinary statement that Jesus is making. Because one of the Ten Commandments is honor your mother and father so that you might have a long life in the land. Jesus is not being cruel. He's not telling you, don't you know, dishonor your mother and father. That is not what he's saying. Don't misunderstand me this morning. What he is saying is that all of the Ten Commandments, including honor your mother and father, comes under the one ages of you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And as you give yourself to that, you will find that all the law is fulfilled, which means that God himself will give you a way to honor your mother and father, but first you must give yourself to loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If you say, God, I'm willing to love you, but first let me do the minor things, you will never find a way. And God in his love and mercy will be very patient and gentle with you. And he will not put judgment on you. And neither do I this morning. But I'm telling you out of love that the first, the first commandment, because it is for your good, it is for your rest, it is for your life, is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. May the name of the Lord be made holy. And so let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the cry of your heart, the cry
require my heart. It's not for my comfort. It's not for my security. It is not for the comfort or the security of my family, even though my family is my assignment. It is first and foremost, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why, God? Why do you ask this of us? Is this not unfair? Is this not unbalanced? It is balanced, but you have to understand how balance works in the kingdom of God. Does Jesus do anything of his own will? No, the Bible says Jesus does everything submitted to the will of the Father. Does the Father do anything for his own good? It says he does everything for the good of the Son and everything for the good of those he loves. The spirit he sends out is completely sent out fully on assignment for the Father, filling the Son, blessing his people. In the Trinity of God, each member completely gives himself to bless the others, and they find themselves blessed and protected in turn. It's the somewhat cheesy anecdote that I've heard so many pastors give. A man dies and goes to heaven, and uh, he doesn't know actually if it's heaven or hell. He just doesn't know where he is, but he goes in his room, and he's really excited. He thinks it's heaven because there's lots of long tables, and there's all the amazing food on the table, food from all over the world, delicious, sumptuous, Pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the palate. He's so excited. And he's like, what, what is all this food for? And someone says to him, oh, it's for you. And we're all going to enjoy this. Really? This is great. Where do I sit? Anywhere you want. Oh, okay. He sits down and is like, all right, how do we eat? He's like, okay, well, there's, there's chopsticks. He's like, okay. So he's really excited. He picks up his chopsticks. But his chopsticks are six feet long. And he picks up a piece of food and he's trying to feed himself. And he can't quite get the food in his mouth. He's like, is this hell that I'm supposed to be looking at this wonderful, delicious food and I'm not able to eat it for myself? And then the person across from him tells him, no, you're doing it wrong. Here, you take your chopstick, you pick up the food, and you feed the person in front of you. And they feed you. And that's heaven. But if you're set on feeding yourself, that's hell. That's how balance works in the kingdom of God. You give yourself 100% for God, and you find that he has given himself 100% for you. And I'm telling you, this is a great exchange. 100% of me does not compare to 100% of God. And we also do this for each other. That's what makes us a gospel-centered family. That's what it means for his kingdom to come from heaven onto earth. The kingdom of heaven is things as they have been designed by God to work. But you realize when you study the kingdom of heaven is that sometimes I kind of like the kingdom of earth. I'm kind of comfortable in the kingdom of earth. I like building my own castle here with my own walls and my own private space and my own control. Sometimes I'll I'll do some church stuff too or I'll put some church rules on it. I'll put some religion on it so it looks churchy, right? I don't like having to do things I don't want to do and to not do things I want to do. And I really hate doing things I don't understand. God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do as long as I understand it first. And more times than you would expect, God does explain it to you. But there always will be things he calls you to do that he will not explain to you. And the reason is simple. It's a test to see whether you love him first. It's a test to see whether you really live by faith. It's a test to see whether you really say, my father who art in heaven, or that's just religion but you don't have the same trust for him that you would have for a father who is all good. It's really easy for me to be faithful to someone if they do exactly as I want them to do. But can you imagine if I get married one day and I'm, I'm giving my marriage vows and I say, okay, these vows I make to you, my beloved, are only valid insofar as your life kind of conforms to my expectation and my hope. And we can make it work. That would be absurd. In my experience as a pastor, I have a chance to talk to a lot of couples, and I think one of the most difficult and challenging moments in many married couples' lives is actually when they deeply love each other and they really want to make it work, but there is a 
bifurcation sometimes in their calling. They started out married and they're like, yeah, our calling's aligned. But then at some point, when somebody feels, okay, my calling is going this direction. God is really leading me here. But this person's like, I still want to go this way. And sometimes you might have to be the one who says, okay, honey, I'm going to go this way with you. And you're going to feel like you're dying to yourself. You're going to feel like you're giving up something that is deeply meaningful to you. It happens. What's my point? My point is that trust becomes a thing you need the most when you're making such a big decision. And it has to be more than just trust in your spouse, because what does your spouse do? Your spouse is human like you. It must be trust in a God who deeply loves you, who knows your way, who will guide your every step. And even if you were to take a wrong step, he is faithful and gentle to lead you back right. But he's waiting for you to listen to him and to trust him because he is your father who is going to provide and equip everything. He will not always explain everything to you, and he's asking you, trust him. Obey him quickly. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the first time in the prayer you ask for something for yourself. And you notice you're not asking for your own desires. This does not mean that you don't have desires, and it does not mean you should not ask for your desires. The book of James says you want, but you don't have, and you don't have because you don't ask. And you don't get when you ask, because when you ask, you don't have faith. You don't actually believe that God is your good Father who wants to provide for you. And so instead, you try to use your own means, and you beg, borrow, murder, steal. And you end up hurting each other, trying to get what you want, when God just wanted you to trust him and ask. So you are supposed to ask for your desires. Why then, in the Lord's Prayer, do you never actually pray for your own desires? You pray simply for your provision. Because this, you are trusting that God who knows your desires, who actually knows you better than you know yourself, is leading you in the way of fulfillment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me besides clear waters, leads me, I mean, green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death as I go through the paths of righteousness, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me, Lord. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And when I come out the other end, he sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with, cup, my head with oil. My cup overflows. Wow. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is leading you besides green pastures and still waters in his paths of righteousness. So even if those paths should take you through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil because he is with you. You understand what he's saying? You don't have to pray from a place where you think that you will remain unfulfilled if you don't tell God your desires. I don't think Isaac ever went to Abraham and said, Dad, this is what I'm looking for in a wife. So how did Abraham and Eliezer know what Isaac was looking for in a wife? Because they had been watching him. Because they love him. And so they know him. And Isaac is just being faithful, serving in the, you know, in, in, in the property of his father. And unbeknownst to him, Abraham has already sent Eliezer off to Syria. He says, come back with a wonderful wife for my son. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe this morning? God is calling you to believe, to stop trying to find your own way, to stop trying to go look at all the different reviews and get all the information and, and make your own decision and have all that pressure and all the stress upon yourself, not just for yourself, but your whole family, because you've got to be the one to make all the decisions. You've got to be God, because only you really love everyone and you need to have all that power. 
There is one who holds you in his hand who loves you more than you could love. And if he should call you to do something difficult that does not make sense, go break up with that person. Go leave your job and go to that place. Go forgive the person who deeply hurts you even though they're not repenting. Trust him. Trust him. Give us this day our daily bread. That's daily bread. Lord, you know what I need today. You know what I need today. Some of you, you do trust him, but you're struggling because you look at your daily bread and you're like, this is not very good. I want more than this. It's okay to want more than this, but you talk it out with him. But whatever that conclusion of your talk is, you trust him because he's good. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This word debt has two meanings, okay? Because it's, it's taken from an Aramaic Chaldean word. It could mean financial debt and it could also mean sin. And here's what it means. This prayer is not just about the present. It's also about the future. When we're praying, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. We're saying today, Lord, let your heaven break in. But we're also saying, God, we are the people of God who anticipate when you shall break into this world in full. One day Jesus is coming back. One day soon, Jesus is coming back. And the fullness of God is going to break into this world. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, something will happen called jubilee. Now, in, in the Old Testament, there is this law that says you can borrow money and, you, you know, you can't, you can't charge interest, but you can borrow money from each other. And sometimes you can even, like, give ex as exchange for loans, like fields or property, right? And sometimes in very extreme circumstances, because maybe, like, the, the weather is really bad or there's a famine, you may even have to, like, sell family members into slavery, but it's not the same kind of slavery. Because every 50 years, there's something called jubilee. Every 50 years, every debt is forgiven. Every slave is returned. Everything goes back to the portion that God assigned each person to have. And so when we say forgive our debts just as we forgive those who, have, who are indebted to us, what God is saying is this. Jubilee is now. The time is now. The end of days is now. And so all debts are off. You come to the Lord and you have so much things that you have done and said, even on a daily basis, you can't control yourself. And sometimes you feel so much shame and burden that God says to you, son, daughter, it's okay, let go. Because I forgive you. How can it be that easy? Because I have decided it's not easy and I've paid the price, it's not easy. But you're worth it. It's not easy. All debts are forgiven. So he forgives you all debts. Forgive those who have debts against you. God, I know I should. I know Christians are supposed to forgive each other. But my brother really went too far. He said things to our dad that he never should have said. And he did things he never should have done. How can I let go, God? God, I want to let go, but it hurts so much. And every time I try to let go, I just think of that pain and I just can't do it, God. God, don't you see? If I let go, I'll never get justice. And I've been waiting for justice my whole life. The world is crying out with these things. Everywhere I go, it's with these things. When I went to Serbia back in uh, 99, and I'm living with my host family, and they're telling me about battles, that the, the, things the Turks did to them 800 years ago. 
when you go work with the Kurds, the Kurds will tell you, and the, and the Christians up there in northern Iraq, they'll tell you about how the, the Turks burned the bodies of the grandmas and the grandpas because they were told that grandmas and grandpas had, sto had stolen gold from the Turks and had swallowed it. So they would basically burn them alive trying to find the gold that, that, that the Christians supposedly stole. You hear stories about these atrocities all over the world. No peace, no peace, no peace. How can there be peace when there seems to be no justice and there's so much pain? It's only possible when you have an encounter with the living God. And he looks you in the eye and he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will get you justice. You trust me and you've let go and you forgive. I will take care of your brother. I will take care of those people who hurt your family. I will take care of your pain. But you obey me in this moment because blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. You see, again, this prayer is not just about the present, but it's about the future. And in many ways, the future is the present. When it says, lead us not into temptation, it's not praying like, God, oh, you know I'm on a diet. You know, uh, I'm on this keto diet, and I, I shouldn't eat like uh, sweet things, but man, that cookie looks really good. Lead me not past that cookie, Lord. Lead me not past that cookie. That's not what it means. Temptation here actually means a time of testing. It means that everybody who is a part of God's people knows that there will be a time when the, the world rises up in opposition to God, and you will be tested on where your loyalties lie. So when it says, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, it is a prayer that when your time of testing comes, when the midnight time comes for you, and it will come for every believer, you say, let me not deny God. Let me be deeply rooted. Do you know that the midnight time is coming for us all? Some of you are old enough that you are going through the midnight time now or you have gone through the midnight time. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are so young you haven't gone through it yet. It comes for us all. And you don't, I don't know, we don't know what we're going to do when that comes. Pray for the grace to make it through. Lead me not into the time of testing, but deliver me from evil. And we end on hope an affirmation of what we know to be true. Because no matter what evil I go through, no matter what suffering I go through, no matter how many losses I take, because this life, there will be losses, there will be suffering, and there will be opposition. Yet I know, Lord, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Now and forever. Amen. So how do we pray the Lord's Prayer? How do you become deeply rooted in, in prayer? Surrender to the Father's plan. This is another one of those things that we used to talk about in the church a lot, but we no longer talk about. I just don't hear churches talk about surrender. I hear churches talk about sin. I hear churches talk about grace. I hear us talk about discipleship. I hear us talk about love, a lot about love. And these are all great things. But we don't talk about surrender. <coughs> All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. To be a Christian is more than to be loved by God. It is more than to come on Sundays and enjoy the fellowship of fellow believers that our deepest fellowship, the reason why the, love of, the bond of love between you and me goes deeper than our affection, deeper than our friendship, deeper than even our physical presence, is because I know that you have given your life to follow Jesus. And when the midnight time comes for me and I want to shake and I want to give up, 
I know that somewhere out there you are holding on. And hopefully you know that I'm holding on. That's what makes us a church. But it must be built on surrender to the Father's will. So let me ask you, in just a few, one or two minutes before I close the sermon, is there any part of you that you have not surrendered to God? My suspicion for most of you is most of you have said to the Lord, you surrendered it all. But here's my suspicion for most of us is that we've surrendered, but we've put conditions. And especially as we grow, we put more and more conditions on God. God, I'll surrender this to you, but only if you do this. Only if this happens. Would you take those conditions off this morning? Because our Father can be trusted. Second is, and then you submit to God's love and refining. You see, the fire is God's idea. The fire of testing is God's idea. Because what the fire of testing will do is two things. It will reveal to you and me the things that are actually in my heart. And the second thing is, is the fire of testing is going to burn away everything in me that is not of God. But everything in me that is of God, it is going to further purify for his glory's sake and his name's sake. So when the fire comes for me, everything in my life that I've built that is not of God is going to burn up. And I will praise God for that. But everything in my life that is of God, it will be reinforced and I will praise God for that. And so if you're going through fire, submit to it. And finally, as ambassadors of God, walk in his power and provision. You see, there is power in prayer. I would not be here testifying to you if there's no power in prayer. But I'm not here this morning. I can tell you some other sermon, but not this morning of all the ways that God listens to your prayer and will answer it. Because first, you must understand that he answers your prayer when it is in alignment with his will. So when you, as ambassadors of God, walk in his power and you pray, let your kingdom come, not mine. Let your will be done, not mine because you are my Father, and may your name be made holy, you will see the power and the provision of God come on your life. And church, I believe, if we walk out the Lord's prayer lifestyle, we will become deeply rooted. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? So, Father, we pray as you taught us to pray. But before we pray, we take a moment just to reflect and we say, Lord, may we mean every word of this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.